I sure appreciate everybody being here on a dreary day. Let's go ahead and start with prayer requests. Who has a request or praises? I know there's two praises right here. I do. I just have a praise for the Lord, and that is not in suffering a few months. In fact, probably for 10 or so years, but uh, I recently had a month level fusion where they just uh, bring me go through every vertebrae in the backbone and fix it up. Take out this, take nerves, and stuff like that. And uh, it was completely successful. And um, I have probably any pain at all anymore. Uh, kind of overworking them a little bit, maybe like that. Uh, doing some planting in the yard yesterday, and stuff like that. But other than that, but I just want to thank everybody for all your prayers, and I know how much it's helped. And, and I, I wouldn't be able to thank everybody, but uh, uh, I really, really appreciate it, and I thank God for for giving me the. Uh, the mercy and the wisdom to go through with the body's real body. That is the praise. Jesse? Good. Lift up Kathy. She's not feeling good this morning. Oh, really? But you are you doing good? Absolutely. I walked, I got there at 5.30 and we walked out and drove out at 10.30. And I was walking that afternoon and that's my schedule. Get up, walk, lay down, walk. <clears throat> so, we're doing that. How about you, Joe? I gained two pounds this week. <laughs> <laughs> One's a praise, though. This is a praise. <laughs> that is great. Who else? Aaron, you don't remember uh, my nephew is leaving to, uh, for the Air Force and joining the Air Force and being start basic training in 28. So, big change for his family. So, so you go to San Antonio? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Landon. Okay. Anybody else? If y'all would remember uh, my baby girl is uh, Abigail's flying home tonight. And um, Debbie will be flying home tomorrow night. So, appreciate y'all praying for them. Any others? If not, let's remember these and our lesson today on the, the suffering church at Smyrna in the uh, book of Revelation. But let's remember all these prayer requests and those that I'm sure some of us haven't mentioned that are on our hearts. Go before the Lord. Eric, would you pray for us? Sure. Father, we just come to you in prayer. 
thanking you, God, for how you rule over our lives, how you the total control of even our suffering. And God, we thank you that you do not leave us alone, but you are a good God. God, you don't, you don't leave us to wonder um, Lord, who, who's in control, what's in control, but God, you plainly tell us in your word that you are. God, we thank you for how you intervened with back ailments and Lord, Chuck gained a couple pounds. God, these victories, Lord, that you give us, just evidence of your goodness. God, for prayer requests, people <coughs> moving all, reaching new stages of life, making decisions. God, that would change their life, change the family's life. I pray that you just continue to minister grace in all things. But God, you show yourself powerful, you show yourself in your glory. That God, that in all these situations you continue to move your church, to mobilize your church, to come around and, and be your hands and, and your feet, and to be a, a real, practical, visible manifestation of, of who you are. God, help us to um, be faithful in that. To always be seeking how you would want to use us Lord, to further your, your kingdom and to bring um, the joy of Christ into other people's lives. Let's pray right now as we give um, you your word, learn about Smyrna, that God, uh, our hearts will be changed, that we'd be challenged and convicted. That God, we would um, learn about how you work in the church. Even when things seem to be um, really bad. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Eric. Um, we are in Revelation. We're in chapter 2 of Revelation. Last time we were together, we looked at the church in Ephesus. And... Um, this week, we are at the second letter, beginning in verse 8 of chapter 2. So, Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. This is the letter to the church in Smyrna. And, um, you know, as we get started, I want to remind everybody that these are real letters to real people in real churches in Jerusalem very real situations. I know I know we all know that, but it, it just really has been profound to me studying to think about these these people just like me and you who are in this church, who are enduring these things and facing these things. And um, <clears throat> so in light of that, I want us to think about the suffering church in general. Um, Smyrna, the letter, excuse me, to Smyrna could be a letter to the martyrs. You could call it a letter to the martyrs. Uh, they're the persecuted church. They're the impoverished church. Uh, but yet, Christ said they're also the rich church. Uh, they're rich in the way that really matters. 
But the main thing is I'm trying to focus on right now is they are real. This is a real church with real issues, real people going through them. So I want to start off by asking, are we persecuted for our faith? Are we as Christians in Calhoun County, America, are we persecuted for our faith? Well, I know it's somewhat rhetorical, and we certainly could respond, yes, you don't have to look very far in what's happening around us to see that there is a lot of persecution, especially in general, toward the Christian faith in America, in general. But I don't think any of us really know what persecution is all about. Um, not by comparison to what we're going to read about today. America is still considered, and I know y'all are going to laugh at this, but we're still considered a, quote, Christian nation. 79.5% of the people in America identify themselves as Christian. Now, you and I know what that means, but still, 80% of the country identify themselves as Christians. Uh, but there are some... Um, Real issues in the world. There's, hey, by the way, did y'all notice I've got a new gadget? I got, a, I got a clicker now. I don't have to turn around and do that. And it's also got a laser pointer on it. So if anybody asks unruly questions, if you see, if you see a red, you just point at random people. <laughs> <laughs> if anybody's out of order, like Bruce, then starts on you, the Terminator. You see, the, you see the red dot on you, you're in trouble. But anyway, um, 7.1 billion, I can't believe it's 7.1 billion people in the world. When I was born, there was less than 3 billion people in the world. Of course, I know y'all say that's a long time ago. But, uh, you better but slow it, down. <laughs> yeah. But um, out of that, 32% identify themselves or considered to be Christian. Uh, but now that's broken down, of course, over a billion are Roman, and then uh, 260 million Orthodox, 275 million Pentecostals, 304 million Charismatics, and 285 million identified as Evangelicals or Bible-believing Christians. And if you talk about persecution in general in the world, these are countries that persecute Christians for their faith. And the darker the color, the more severe the persecution. And of course, you can see where is persecution the worst? 1040 window, Muslim countries. Except for one, the very worst persecution on earth. Number one, these are rankings by the persecuted church. Number one is North Korea. North Korea is the worst environment for the persecuted church in the world. And you see all the rest of them are Islamic states. But, so persecution is very real. People are not just being impoverished. People are not just being slandered. People aren't just losing their jobs. People are dying. And martyrdom among Christians is faster and more prevalent today than it's ever been in terms of quantity. More people are dying for their faith than ever before. This may shock you, but 
On average, we're up to 160,000 people are dying for their faith every year. That's over 400 a day. That's about 18 every hour. So the time we sit in here, on average, 18 people will die because they name the name of Christ. That's hard for me to comprehend. That's hard for me to really identify with. I don't ever think about my life being at risk because I'm a believer. I don't know if um, any of y'all have ever been in a situation where you felt. I know Jesse was in a situation one time that he had to think about that where you could in uh, Honduras. But I've never had an idea of what it felt like to be at risk of losing your life because you named the name of Christ. But today, we're talking about a church full of people that that's exactly what they were doing. Um, they're risking their life because they named the name of Christ. And that's the church in Smyrna. Smyrna is the little town, or is not little today, it wasn't little back then either, but it's the town north of Ephesus. It's on the coast. Um, in same map again, you see Smyrna up above Ephesus. There's a great harbor there. There's a perfect harbor. It was described as one of the most beautiful cities in all of Asia. Um, it Today, in, in fact, it's interesting about the church at Smyrna. You know, I think it was Chuck talked about once before, of all these churches, how many of them still remain today? There is a real body of believers left in Smyrna, Turkey today. Smyrna is the only one that survives. I think that's very interesting because they're the martyr church. You know, they were being put to death. This is not a good photograph, but this is modern day Smyrna. Uh, the name of the city today is Izmir. I think you pronounce it Izmir. I-Z-M-I-R. It's three million people. Then Smyrna was about 100,000 people. And, um, but it supposedly is a very beautiful setting. It was supposed to be like the jewel of Western Asia. This is a photograph from the Agora. The Agora was the marketplace in the middle of the town. And you see it's interesting that the ruins are there in the midst of modern buildings today. Uh, it was considered the most beautiful city in Asia. A proud and beautiful city regarded itself as the pride of Asia. An inscription on the coins describes it as the first of Asia in beauty and size. Although Ephesus and Pergamum were larger in population. It was the birthplace of the poet Homer. So they were very proud of that. A very proud um, city in terms of their science, their knowledge, their quote culture. And they felt they were very civilized and they were very close to Rome. They were very tight with the Roman government and the Caesars. In fact, because of that, one of the first temples to emperor worship was built here before Christ was born. Um, and I think about 29 BC, a uh, uh, temple was built to the emperor Tiberius. Um, but it was a very tough place for Christians because of two things. Number one, emperor worship was gone mad. 
and say it was so bad in um, Smyrna that once a year, everybody in Smyrna had to burn incense to the emperor and sign a certificate acknowledging Caesar as God. Or they faced persecution, imprisonment, even confiscation of all that they had, even death. So you see what kind of environment that made for real Christians. If you're a real believer, you're not going to sign that. You're not going to worship Caesar as God, and so immediately you have a problem. Number two reason it was a tough environment for Christians is a big Jewish presence here. And you say, well, why would that be a problem for Christians? The Jews here were Jews ethnic, uh, ethnically. They weren't true Jews. They were just Jews in heredity. And so they really persecuted the Christians. They ratted, up, ratted them out to the Roman government because they felt like they were a cult. They really were against Christians because they accused them of um, being atheists because, you know, they, they worshipped a man. You know, they obviously didn't acknowledge Christ as the Messiah. They certainly didn't, didn't acknowledge Christ as God. They accused them of being incestuous. Incest, incestuous. They accused them of incest. Because, they, you know, all the talk about brothers and sisters. They accused them of immoral uh, conduct because of the talk of holy kiss. You know, they would greet the people with a holy kiss. They accused them of cannibalism. And you think, well, that's weird. But it's because of the, the uh, sacraments. Because of eating the uh, body and blood of Christ. They accused them of all kinds of stupid, weird stuff. They were slanderous, as we'll see in the Scripture. So it was a very, very tough place to be. Very tough. And um, the uh, letter... We'll point that out as we get into it. Let's read, though, the letter. By the way, this is the shortest of the letter, uh, of all the seven letters. It's just verses 8 through 11, chapter 2. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Just on reading that, does the impact of what you just heard, does that hit you the way it hit me when I really started thinking about this? Because what is Christ basically saying? I know it's tough, but it's going to get worse. And what does Christ offer me? Nothing. No deliverance. He says, it's going to get, it's bad now. But it's going to get worse. You're going to be put in prison. And then you're going to be put to death. And he says, be faithful. Be faithful unto death. 
I just want to say, yeah, you notice that he tells them that the only consolation he gives them is they won't be touched by the second death. But it's almost like that's to say, by implication, you know, obviously they don't mean you won't be hurt by, you know, physical death. Yeah. I think, I think it's, uh, what's the emphasis where it ought to be? We ought to think about that in, in our walk. You know, we, we spend an awful lot of time worrying about our physical well-being unto death. Now, I don't think God sees death the way we do. Absolutely. And praise God for that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Christ was offering the ultimate as he closed that letter. Yeah. Yeah, I just think that uh, suffering is just, it, you know, the whole Bible is really cloaked in it when you read it. I mean, the, the whole, the, the entire Bible is really cloaked in suffering. And we have to realize that I think that, uh, that God is most glorified in, through the sufferings of His church. And if you live a Christian life, it's going to be hard. And, you know, it's not going to be easy. Exactly. But you know, I think the interesting thing is before he tells them that, the first thing he tells them is do not fear. You know, he said that to his, and, and literally that means stop being afraid. And I understand that, but I'm just thinking, I'm trying to imagine myself. You'll see, it's real easy for me to stand up here. I'm in America, I'm not under threat of death. I've got a full stomach, you know, I've got clothes, I've got a house, you know, I'm not impoverished, I haven't lost my job because I believe in Christ, I haven't had everything I own taken away because I believe in Christ, I haven't been thrown in jail because I believe in Christ, I'm not facing death because I won't name Caesar as God and I refuse to deny Christ. You see, what I'm just saying in reality... If I try to put myself in this situation, I'm thinking, Jesus, can't you tell me something other than this? <laughs> you know? Yeah. I was just going to say, going back to what he says, you know, about the, the way he's heard about the second death, it, to me, by implication, it, it, Christ knows in the end, even when it gets really bad, what's going to comfort them, and that is... <clears throat> You know, and I, this might be just speculation, but that they believe what Romans 8 says. There's nothing, no matter what happens, you can separate you from the love of Christ. And you know what's interesting thought here, too? The name Smyrna in the Septuagint. You know, the Septuagint's the Greek version of the Old Testament. In the Septuagint, the word Smyrna is used, it's a Greek word. And every time it's used in the Septuagint, you know what it refers to? Myrrh. Myrrh. The spice, the balm, myrrh. That showed up three times in the life of Christ. What were the three times we see myrrh in Jesus' life? And, and it always symbolizes suffering and death. First time when he was born, right? The wise men brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. <clears throat> and of course... Uh, each one of them symbolized something. And then the third time was when he's dying on the cross. They would mix myrrh because it was a deadening agent. It relieved pain. 
And so they put myrrh in wine, put it on a sponge, held it up to him. You remember in John? Trying to get him to drink of it, and he wouldn't because it would numb the pain. And then, of course, after he died, Nicodemus took his body, put it in the tomb, and they covered his body with myrrh because it was also a fragrant. It was bitter to the taste. Myrrh literally means bitter, but it was fragrant, and it gave, um, as you crushed it, and think about the symbolism, as you crushed myrrh, it gave off a fragrant aroma. And as the lives of these people were crushed, the fragrance of their sacrifice and their faithfulness to God gave off a pleasing aroma. And you know, Tertullian first made the comment that the blood of the martyrs is what? The seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And the more the church is persecuted, the more the real church, I don't mean the 80% in America who claim to be Christians. I don't mean the 2.2 billion in the world that claim to be Christians. But I mean the 160,000 who are dying for their faith. Those are the martyrs that are the seed of the real church. That That's why the church is growing. That's why the real church suffered a setback when the Iron Curtain came down. The real church behind the Iron Curtain was prospering. Now it's becoming secularized. It's becoming compromised with the world. But as Bruce and Eric brought out, notice the focus on Jesus. The focus here on Jesus Christ, first of all, the components, the number one components, the command to John to write, and then we've talked about the city, Smyrna, and what, what it means, myrrh. My clicker's not keeping up with me. And, um, and then now we're at the self-description, Christ describing himself. And to me, I thought one commentator I read made a real good point. This letter is totally about Jesus. The focus of this letter is on Jesus Christ. He doesn't give them any real practical instruction for them to do. He's saying, trust. He's saying, be faithful. Don't fear. You're preserved from the second death. <clears throat> you know, it's like Christ is the focus. Look at me because I am the first and the last. There's nothing that was before Jesus. He's the Alpha and the Omega. Christ existed as eternal God before anything did. Nothing outlasts Christ. He'll be here when everything else is gone. He is eternal. And this phrase, by the way, is used over and over again in the book of Isaiah in uh, chapters 40 and 44 to refer to God Himself. <coughs> so <clears throat> this is really a direct claim to deity. Christ is saying, I am God. I am God in the flesh. And then the next phrase, who was dead and has come to life, very interesting to think about. He claims deity. He is God, the first and the last. But then he says, but then I became dead. Literally, I became dead and now I have come to life. Think about that. How can God die? 
God is eternality. How can God die? How could Jesus Christ, God the Son, die? Well, in reality, I don't think it's accurate to say God died. Jesus died in his humanity. Because if God ever died, everything ceases to exist. The world would cease. Creation would obliterate. It would fall apart. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 3, 18 says, Christ was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So he died in the flesh, but his spirit never died. All right? But that's the focus of what they need. They, have you noticed in each of these letters, the title that Christ takes on is a title to give comfort for the church's situation. If you're facing persecution, suffering, and death, it's good to be reminded, nothing precedes me, nothing goes past me, I am eternal God, I was dead, I died, and I conquered death. I am now alive forevermore. And because I conquered death, you can too. Doesn't it also say that if you're in me, even though you may die, you will live? Isn't that what Jesus is saying? If you're in me, yeah. you know, look at me. If you're in me, even though you're going to die, you'll live. And that's a great point, Chuck. When he showed up at the tomb of Lazarus and Martha was saying, you know, if you'd only been here, and what did he tell her when she said, if you'd only been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And he said, I am the resurrection and the life. If anyone believes in me, even though he dies, yet he shall, what? Live. He'll live. Because, like Chuck said, if we're in Christ, death cannot touch us. Death is only sleep for the believer. And it's, like whoever said it earlier, we don't look at death the way God does. I think it's Chuck. We don't look at death the way God does. And if we did, we would have a totally different viewpoint. Alright, next. His commendations and consolation. I know. I know what? I know your tribulation. That's intense pressure is what that word means. And your poverty. Even though you're rich. Even though they're impoverished, they have no world. And by the way, there's two words for poverty in the Bible. One means a lack of luxury. That you don't have amenities to life. And then one means you have nothing at all. Guess which one's used here? The second one. They had nothing at all. They weren't poor in that they lacked certain amenities or luxuries. They were poor in that they had nothing. They were probably slaves. And because of their faith, even what they had had been taken away. And they were just living literally hand to mouth. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not. In other words, they were slandered. They were slandered by false Jews. And by the way, it's interesting that here and in the other letter where there is no criticism, this, this is one of two letters that receives no criticism. The other one is the letter to Philadelphia. And in both letters, the synagogue of Satan is mentioned. Does that seem a little bit strong? for Christ to refer to Jews as an, as an assembly of satanic believers. He tells the Pharisees, you are your father of the devil. 
John 8. Yeah, like you're either of God or you're of Satan. That seems hard. We don't like to think about it that way. And it's kind of like, you know, if you if you invite someone to come to Christ and they say no, I say, if you were to say, okay, so you follow Satan, they would get mad. But that's the two choices. You're either a follower of Satan or you're a follower of Christ. That seems a little bit harsh, but that's the way God divides it up. Well, that's 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 the deception that there is a gray area. There is no gray area. Yeah. But it, it's shocking to me that Christ would say, these Jews, I mean, think about who's in the city. You got people worshiping the emperor. You got people worshiping Zeus. You got people worshiping all this pantheon of gods. And he picks on the Jews. I think it's because he knew they, they should know about they, it. The other people have not ever really been exposed to any type of truth. They have the scriptures. Right, and he speaks of the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not. Exactly. It uses a very serious word because it was heretical for them to accuse the true Jews. These were true Jews, Romans 2, not one outwardly, but one inwardly, where circumcision is of the heart. These were true Jews, and they were being slandered. They were being persecuted. They were being put to death because they were true Jews. Next is a criticism. In every letter except two, the commendation is followed by criticism. What does Christ have to say negative about this church? Nothing. Now, I think it's interesting to consider that the two letters that receive no criticism are Smyrna and Philadelphia. Smyrna is the suffering, persecuted church. The martyr church. Philadelphia, we'll get to that, is, for lack of a better word, the missionary church. The going forth church. The one stepping through the open door of opportunity doing what Christ calls them to do. So I think it's interesting for us to consider that Christ offers no criticism to a church who is undergoing severe persecution and to a church who is advancing the gospel mightily through missionary efforts. The call. So he says, what does he say to them? What does he tell them? I hope you can read this. I know it's a little bit crowded. He says, don't fear. Do not fear the suffering, as Bruce says. You will be in prison. I mean, like, I know it's bad, but it's going to get worse. You're going to be put in jail. And I'm not trying to be flippant, y'all. I'm trying to get y'all to... Because the more I studied this and the more I thought about it, I thought, how can he say this? You know, how can Jesus say this to these people? You know, he doesn't say, look, I'm coming to deliver you. I'm coming to redeem you. He's saying, you're impoverished. You're... Uh, under intense pressure and you're slandered and this is what's going to happen. It's going to get worse. You're going to be put in jail. You're going to be tested and you're going to endure more tribulation and then you're going to die. But who can tell? Can you imagine a preacher standing up in a pulpit telling his congregation this message? Number one, who really can deliver a message like this except Jesus himself? 
Because he has a right to say this to us. He owns us. He can tell us whatever he wants to. But he says, and you'll endure tribulation for 10 days. And there's a lot of talk about what the 10, if the 10 days were literal or symbolic. Just a short time. Or if they referred to the 10 uh, uh, ages of persecution under the 10 Roman Caesars that came. Again, I'm simple-minded. I think it means 10 days. You know, it may be a link back to Daniel when Daniel and his three friends were tested for 10 days. By the way, as Heath mentioned earlier, persecution comes to test believers. Because by our testing, like Job, God said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? He puts us on display with testing our faith. And you know what? If it's real faith, what's going to happen? It'll endure. You know, I don't see how I could endure this. But I think by the grace of God, God could give me the faith to endure it where I put in that situation. And I think you hit it right on the head right there because when he says, do not fear, yeah, we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. But that empowering doesn't manifest itself. God gives us what we need when we need it. If you're, if you're not under that persecution, the power to withstand that won't be exhibited. You're not going through it. Because Jesus says the same thing back in Luke, um, Luke 12. He says, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you or show you who, whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. We're to fear God. We're not to fear, fear those who can kill the body. You even look at the life of Paul where he says, I've been in fear of my countrymen and in Gentiles. But at the end of the day, Paul lived his life with that, even though there were that, those times of fears, when he faced, it, that, faced that kind of testing, he endured it. You know, he was stoned. He was beaten with rocks. He was able to, that's why he, he was able to sing hymns while being in the stocks. Yeah. It See, does I can imagine that. It does but, put everything in perspective. Yeah. I thought, the 10 days is kind of comforting in a way because it lets them know that it will end and that only as long as God allows. Yeah. That's a good point. What was the 10 days? It is said that they would be tested for 10 days. Well, a lot of scholars think that it referred to 10 eras. Some think it refers to 10 years. Or how about 10 days? Yeah, that's what I think, because that's what it says. I mean, I was just curious at what... <laughs> but I was just curious at what, what was it with was there, was there something that came through the city? Like some sort of... No, but see, remember... A legion of Roman soldiers that terrorized the city for 10 days? Or? But remember, prison, only in America can we turn prisons into places where you train people to be worse. That prisons were originally designed to be holding places where you held them for carry out of sentence. Oh, so these, these people were put in there maybe for 10 days and then executed. Yeah, it was just, they were, they were just held in prison. And probably, and probably, uh, and probably tortured. Yeah, it, and, and I, I wish I had time to read y'all some of the accounts of the torture 
that these people went through. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Is it in the Book of Martyrs, maybe? Uh, yeah. In fact, this week I read some of Fox's Book of Martyrs. And, well, these people here. Oh yeah, oh yeah, we're getting to that. I'm I'm coming to the best example you've ever heard. Alright, so the exhortation is he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to churches, as to every letter, every church. And then the promise to the victor. As Eric mentioned, he who overcomes will not be hurt in any way. There's a double negative there. It says, He who overcomes will know not. This is the strongest Greek term could be used. Is no, not ever can you be hurt in any way by the second death. And if you go to Revelation chapter 20, verse 14, it says the second death is the lake of fire. So, if you're born again, you die once. If you're not born again, you die twice. And the second death is where it's really bad. It also infers, you have these people that, there's some Christians that believe that maybe hell is not Everybody lives forever. It's just, do you live forever with God or do you live forever separated from God? Death in the Bible means separation. Exactly. First death is separation from your physical body. Second death is separation from God for eternity. Very well put. That's a, that's, that's a good definition. I don't know if y'all heard that, but Chuck said... The first death is separation from physical body, and the second death is separation from God. If you're a believer, it's separation from any any presence of sin, anything. You're separated from everything, and you're separated unto God in holiness. All right, I want us to run through this real quick because this is the most powerful example of martyrdom that I can even begin to think of. Um, Polycarp and I know many of y'all thinking what kind of name is Polycarp if y'all haven't heard of Polycarp he was a famous Christian martyr he was born in uh, 69 AD and remember the letter was delivered to Smyrna and he's in Smyrna the letter is delivered to Smyrna in 96 so he would have been about 27 years old and he was discipled by the apostle John himself so Polycarp was second generation from Christ himself. All right, he advanced mightily in his faith. So much so that in uh, 115, he was appointed by John to be the bishop or the head of the church in Smyrna. And he remained as such until his death in 155. So 155 is what? About... Um, 59 years after the letter's been delivered, <clears throat> persecution's been going on rampantly in Smyrna. All right, Polycarp is again in the, this generation passing on tradition. You see John to Polycarp, and then he discipled Irenaeus. Irenaeus became the head of the church in France as the church expanded. So isn't that neat how God passes on from one generation to another? And all of us, we can trace our lineage back to people like this. All right, but think about 
Think about Polycarp. Alright? A letter, this is an actual eyewitness account of the martyrdom of Polycarp in 155. The mob in Smyrna was in an uproar about declaring or demanding that the atheists be done away with. And Polycarp as the head of the atheists, in other words, they didn't worship all the pantheon of gods. They wanted him put to death. So, when Polycarp first heard they were looking for him, he didn't panic. He was um, uh, outside the city in a house and when they came to get him, they found him praying and he prayed for two hours for the men who came to arrest him. So much so that they were convicted and repented of why they would even bother such a venerable man like Polycarp. The story, I mean, I've got way too many pages to tell you some of the stories of this man. It's just really unbelievable. Well, anyway, finally, they did arrest him. They brought him into the city, brought him into the Colosseum. And this is a famous painting, supposedly of Polycarp and some of the other members of the church in the Colosseum at Smyrna, supposedly, and that's Polycarp in the middle. And uh, he, uh, he was brought into the city and the Jews went crazy because they hated him so bad. And they demanded that he be put to death. And they first put him out there demanding that the wild beast eat him alive. But some ruler, I forget his name, said that the time for that had already passed. They'd already had their fun with wild beasts eating people alive. So they decided, okay, we'll burn him at the stake. So the Jews went crazy, and the account is the Jews went through the city gathering up uh, logs and pieces of things to burn, and they built a bonfire in the stadium. I'm talking about the crowd did this. This is how incensed they were over Polycarp. And then they, they did a man to put him out there and he said, I got to read you this. He says, um, he was petitioned by the uh, ruler saying, what harm is there in saying Lord Caesar and in sacrificing with the other ceremonies observed on such occasions and so make sure of your safety? But he said, I shall not do as you advise me. So they took him in the stadium and the tumult rose up again. And all the believers testified to hearing a voice from heaven say, be strong and show thyself a man, O Polycarp. No one saw anything, but all the believers testified they heard that voice. And then again, the proconsul persuaded him again, saying, Have respect to thy old age. Swear by the fortune of Caesar. Repent and say away with the atheist. But Polycarp, gazing with a stern countenance on all the multitude of the wicked heathen in the stadium, waving his hands toward them, looked up to heaven and said, Away with the atheist. And then the proconsul said, Swear and I will set thee at liberty. Reproach Christ. Polycarp declared, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? So he said again, Swear by the fortune of Caesar. He said, I 
Why should I swear by the fortune of Caesar and pretendest not to know who and what I am? Hear me declare with boldness, I am a Christian. And if you wish to learn what the doctrines of Christianity are, appoint me a day and thou shalt hear me. He went on, the, the, this went on and on and then um, they threatened him with fire and he said, Thou threatenest me with fire which burneth only for an hour and after a while is extinguished but are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why tarriest thou? Bring thou what thou wilt. So, they took him out and they, they were going to nail him to the stake and he said, no, just bind me because I will not flee. And so they just bound him to the stake and they started to uh, burn him alive. But again, eyewitness testimony was that the flames bowed around him and it was described as the sail of a ship and that he glowed in the middle as the Hebrew children did in the furnace and was untouched by the flames. And that they built such a huge bonfire that the flames were great and mighty like this, but they didn't even touch it. And so then the proconsul got so mad that he demanded a man run up there and stab him with a, a sword. And he did. And it said, and his blood ran out. And the, instantly the great flame was extinguished by the outpouring of his blood. Now I'm not saying all this to try to paint a mystical or magical kind of thing, but I firmly believe God could have demonstrated powerfully his presence with his faithful polycarp. And I just think how powerful is it to think of these people who are willing to give everything and yet I'm not willing to give anything. And so what I, I want us to leave with is these questions. First of all, does Christ call us to suffer sometimes with no relief? Did Christ call Johnny Erickson Tata to a life of suffering in a wheelchair? And he offers her no escape from that wheelchair. And even adds cancer on top of that. And so what's encouragement Johnny Erickson taught? Be faithful unto death. And why is it good to think of it that way? Because we need to think, what are we willing to live for? Because are we all not dying? Right? I'm dying. You, you are dying. Now, we're not dying like Polycarp in the next hour, maybe. You know, we don't know. But we're dying. So what is it you're dying for? Is the question. We're all dying for something. So what is it? Um, and so, with that, I guess we'll wrap it up. Let's pray. Holy Father, we praise you and thank you for this day. And Lord, I stand amazed at the faith of the suffering Christians like Polycarp.